Starting on January 11th, Health Power will be posting every Tuesday instead of every Tuesday and Thursday. On Thursdays, starting on the 12th, you're going to get Dog Eared with Lisa Davis. Say write books about dogs. I interview them. So if you're a dog lover, I hope you will check it out. Tell your friends, tell your family, also tell them about Health Power. So again, Health Power every Tuesday, Dog Eared with Lisa Davis every Thursday. Hope you'll tune in. Inflammation is a word we hear a lot about when we're thinking about health, when you're looking up articles. It seems like it always comes up. As a matter of fact, we've talked about it quite a bit here on Health Power. What I've never talked about, though, is the history. And I just read the most fascinating book. It is A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease. And it is by Shulpa Ravella, who is a transplant gastroenterologist with expertise in nutrition and an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, New York Magazine, Slate, Discover, and USA Today, among other publications. And she has appeared as an expert on ABC's Good Morning America and in print media outlets including Forbes, Cosmetolitan, Food and Wine, Glamour, and Women's Health. Her TED-Ed lesson, How the Food You Eat Affects Your Gut, has garnered over 5 million views. I am not surprised. Shopa, welcome to Health Power. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I just really enjoyed your book, and boy, I learned so much. What is inflammation? Well, inflammation is really an ancestral response that evolved to fight forces like pathogens and poisons and trauma. So it's, it's our body's response against, against these things that ancient human beings routinely succumb to. So with acute inflammation, um, we really want to be able to defend ourselves against against these invaders. You begin the book with a story about your friend Jay. Tell us a little bit about him and what he was going through. Well, uh, Jay, Jay is a close friend, and this was about 10 years ago. And what happened was Jay went to the gym one day to work out and just had a typical workout, probably spent about an hour in the gym. And when he came home, he started having some pain in the back of his neck. We mm. thought this was just due to some muscle strain, so we didn't make too much of it. But over the next few days and weeks, this muscle pain actually devolved into something more insidious. He developed a complete head drop, which means that he couldn't lift his head off of his chest. And he actually ended up requiring a body brace for a couple of years. Uh, and he started becoming more debilitated in that he wasn't able to swallow his food as well, had some weaknesses in muscle groups and other parts of his body. And for a long time, we actually didn't know what was causing this. And he was eventually diagnosed with an atypical autoimmune disorder. What was going on in uh, the muscles of his neck that his body was mounting an inflammatory uh, response against those muscles, particularly, but also muscles around other parts of his body. And uh, we, you know, at the time, we had no idea that this was an autoimmune disease. We thought, you know, he had seen several neurologists and then also a couple of rheumatologists. But the question was, was this something neurological uh, or was this something inflammatory? Was this an autoimmune disorder? The typical signs that, that, we, that we typically see in an autoimmune disorder were not present. And he, he didn't have a clear diagnosis for a very long time. Yeah, that must have been so scary. It was, it was definitely scary, yes. Wow. You write in the book, quote, there is a yin and yang to inflammation that is analogous to using a fire hose. Can you expand on that? Sure. We want just enough inflammation, meaning we want inflammation to do the things that it is supposed to do. We want it to fight germs and poisons in our body, heal right. wounds, 
but we also want inflammation to turn off as it should. So after it's fought those germs and healed those wounds and, and fought those poisons, we do want inflammation to abate as it should. And so it's really about a balance of inflammation in our bodies. It was interesting to read about the work of, and I hope I don't say these names wrong, Virchow, Erluck, Celsus, uh, Peter Libby. I mean, there, there was so many interesting people. And if you can talk to us a little bit about the work of Virchow. Sure. Well, Virchow was very central to the book. I, I was just fascinated by him as a person. And, and you know, he, he was a 19th century German pathologist. And this was kind of the dark ages of inflammation. You know, uh, folks knew that they that they could see inflammation with the naked eye as the ancients had done. So you can see redness, pain, swelling, and heat, the cardinal signs of inflammation. But beyond that, uh, folks really didn't have an understanding of why inflammation was there or even uh, the more microscopic qualities of inflammation. Virchow was one of the first uh, uh, physicians to really understand inflammation on a cellular level. So he, he, uh, he understood inflammation based on the microscopic observations uh, that he made. So he had more specific explanations for why we were seeing the redness, heat, swelling, and pain that we were seeing. So uh, the heat and redness, for example, come from the increased blood flow and blood vessel dilation. The swelling uh, came from fluid and protein leaking out into tissues and putting painful pressure on the nerve endings. So Virchow was someone also who really insisted for hard evidence for uh, uh, popular theories. And this was a time when human bodies were thought to be filled with a quartet of liquids, uh, the humors, and and uh, dysgrasias or an imbalance in these liquids were thought to be responsible for all disorders. So in a time like that, he really insisted on hard scientific evidence for uh, various theories. Wow, that's really incredible. And we're actually uh, reviving a lot of his theories today. So I was very fascinated by this person as a whole. Yeah, it really was interesting. You know, a friend of mine recently died of a heart attack, and it's just so shocking. Thank you. I mean, it's, and you talk about inflammation and heart disease, you write, is typically invisible to the naked eye. So what's going on with our hearts and inflammation? Well, typically, when we think of the risk factors for heart disease, we, we think of blood cholesterol levels, we have to bring the blood cholesterol levels down. And we think of other risk factors like obesity and high blood pressure, smoking, uh, diabetes. And inflammation in and of itself is an independent risk factor for heart disease. And that was established pretty recently, just within the last decade. And this is actually something that Rudolf Virchow posited in the 19th century. And we mm-hmm. didn't have the evidence, the full evidence back then. But we know today, uh, based on the work by uh, Peter Libby and Paul Ridker, who were to Harvard cardiologists, we do know that inflammation is an independent risk factor. So that means that if you do not have any of the other risk factors for heart disease, but you have this simmering sort of silent inflammation in your body, you are at a greater risk of developing a heart attack or a stroke or cardiovascular death in general. Now, Libby and Ridker came together. They teamed up for a randomized controlled trial. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. They, they teamed up and uh, conducted something called the Canto study. And uh, the Canto study looked at thousands of patients. And what it did was to deploy a very specific anti-inflammatory drug in patients who were silently inflamed, but controlling for all of these other risk factors for heart disease. And uh, they found that the patients who received the anti-inflammatory drug did indeed have a lower risk of heart attacks, strokes, and cardiovascular death. 
So, so that told the world that controlling inflammation, simply controlling inflammation can lower your risk of heart disease. So we have to find a way to, to prevent or to treat that hidden inflammation uh, that is a risk marker. Another quote I took from the book was, underlying the infamous top killers of modern humans, heart disease and cancer was, a, was perhaps a common foe. So they're starting to see how inflammation can affect you on, a, on numerous levels in terms of different diseases that it can, I, I don't know if you say cause or that it contributes to. Exactly. And I think when we look at the word cause versus association, you know, the data for causation is stronger in some disorders like heart disease, but there are broad associations across the spectrum of chronic diseases that we are familiar with today. So this means nearly all of our chronic disorders, including top killers like heart disease and cancer, but also disorders like obesity, diabetes, neurodegenerative disease, some cases of psychiatric disorders, we're seeing broad associations with inflammation and it is just so pervasive. And we've talked about inflammation for a long time. You know, we, we, we've been talking about it for a long time, but, but the paradigm shift is really that we, we are not able to say that inflammation is not just a consequence of disease, not just pervasive within diseases, but it can be an independent cause of disease. And I think that's really been the paradigm shift and, and, and this idea that we do today hopefully have the tools to control hidden inflammation and, and to uh, lower this risk factor marker. So when it comes to inflammation, I mean, what's really going on? I would think it would be part saturated fat, part sugar. You've got information on salt and inflammation. I mean, is this about balance? It really is about balance in so many ways. And it's really about the Western diet. And the Western diet that we have today, it's filled with a lot of fatty animal products, uh, which we know that modern meat, for example, is so intrinsically different from the meat that we used to eat. You know, for example, our Paleolithic ancestors used to eat meat that was more similar to antelope flesh, and it had much lower amounts of saturated fat, much higher amounts of omega-3s, and it was very lean. And, you know, they consumed this meat in smaller portions, and they consumed it in the context of being so very active every day. And so now, you know, what we're doing is consuming large quantities of modern meat, which has much more saturated fat, much less omega-3s. Oftentimes, you know, these animals were grown in, in uh, pretty horrible conditions and filled with antibiotics and and we're eating lots of meat, of course, also lots of dairy. So we're getting lots of that uh, saturated fat and animal protein as well. And, and we're also filling our plates with processed foods. So, and processed foods are probably the worst component of our diet. I can say probably the very worst component of the yeah, Western diet. We're shopping more in the aisles of supermarkets as opposed to the perimeter. And these processed foods have just exploded you know, in terms of uh, marketing and in terms of the ability of these companies to get these foods onto our plates. And processed foods, of course, are filled with inflammatory additives. They're whole food uh, derivatives. So you're missing out on all of these beneficial components that you do find in whole foods, particularly in whole plant foods. So it really is on so many levels, it's, it's about uh, balancing your plate. When you look at the uh, traditional Mediterranean diet and how they were eating any types of animal foods, you know, really they were using the animal foods to flavor the dishes if they included them at all. So I think it's great if you can be 100% plant-based, but if not, as long as you're, you're sort of um, filling your plate with tons of plant foods, that's kind of the goal. 
Yeah, I think so, too. You know, it was interesting reading in your chapter, Farm Country, about George McGovern. So in 1968, to protect low-income individuals, that he had these federal assistance programs. And you write, quote, Americans with plenty of food were getting sicker than ever because those programs were all about the processed food. Right, right. And it was really a problem of excess and a problem of having all of these processed foods that were coming into supermarkets. George McGovern really was just trying to tell folks, hey, fill your plate with more plant foods, eat less meat and dairy and eat less processed foods and eat more fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And that's that's what he he, he tried uh, oh. to put forth for this country with uh, the first iteration of the dietary guidelines in 1977. But industry... Uh, was very unhappy with the word less when it came to their products. So, you know, so uh, the meat industry, the sugar industry, the salt industry. So, so all of these forces colluded to, to change uh, the wording in uh, the first iteration of the dietary guidelines. So instead of saying eat less meat, we started saying choose meats that have less saturated fat. So we started blaming nutrients rather than the whole foods and and that kind of became confusing for people because it was really easy to sort of go to the grocery store and, and find a box that, that said, all right, this food is low in saturated fat, for example. Yeah, yeah. And that's the bed is full of other stuff. So it's... Exactly. Now, tell us about mangia foglia. Well, that actually means to eat greens in, in, in Italian. And, and that's a, a chapter in which I talk about some of the work of Ansel Keys, who was a nutrition scientist, a uh, Minnesotan nutrition scientist. And uh, manchifoglia really means you should be filling your plate with greens. And and I, I talk about not just uh, greens like kale and dark leafy greens, but also the herbs. There are so many herbs and the traditional Neapolitan diet, for example, that Keyes studied as part of his seven country studies was so filled with herbs, and herbs we know are some of the most anti-inflammatory foods that we can eat. We tend to forget about herbs and spices in general, but greens are highly antioxidant. Uh, you, you know, they're chock full of fiber, uh, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals like polyphenols, which are very important uh, components that we need to be introducing into our bodies. Now, what is hidden inflammation? Hidden inflammation, I can say that one of the salient uh, threads hidden inflammation is that it is a type of inflammation that we are not typically used to testing for or treating. So if we walk into our doctor's offices, we are unlikely to hear, uh, hey, let's test you for hidden inflammation and then treat it. And that's at present today. This may, may change in the future, but currently we are not typically used to testing for or treating it. And it's a type of inflammation that is uh, associated with or causative for a wide variety of our chronic disorders, including our, our most pressing disorders like heart disease and cancer, top killers. Susie DeVille was burned out, lost, and rudderless when her life imploded. She was drowning in debt and the grip of unhealthy habits with a marriage and business that had come crashing against the rocks. No one was more surprised than she that the solutions she was desperate for were rooted in tapping into her inspired creativity. She had never considered herself to be creative, certainly not an artist. She learned on her journey, though, that the cultural lore of what it means to be an artist was at best limited and at worst a lie. By reconnecting with her creativity, she reclaimed her confident true self and discovered how to find her way back to feeling more alive as she built a business and life she loved. 
In the transformational book, Buoyant, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Becoming Wildly Successful, Creative, and Freed, DeVille shares a much easier path to success, joy, and flow. Buoyant is a celebration of the human spirit, which inspires us to wake up and reach our intuitive longings. It powerfully prompts us to accept the grand adventure of living our inspired true nature. Buoyant is available wherever books are sold. Can somebody find out how bad their inflammation is? I mean, for example, you know, let's say there's a a thin person. They might have really bad inflammation because they're living on crap. They're just not gaining weight, but they might assume they're fine, right? Because, well, I, you know, I'm not overweight because I feel like so many things are blamed in our society on being overweight. Whereas sometimes, you know, you don't want to miss it if you're slim and you're not taking care of yourself. Exactly. That's a great point. And you can certainly be slim and in perfect shape and still be silently inflamed. And this goes back also historically to Ansel Keys and when he went to Europe to, and he he asked, he went to uh, Finland, he saw that uh, these men in Finland were in perfect shape. Uh, you know, they they had flat bellies and they were active during the day. Um, they ate a lot of butter, a lot of cheese, and they had one of the highest rates of heart disease in all of Europe. And and so you certainly can be thin and not be living a great lifestyle, you know, if you don't exercise, if you don't eat the right foods, that can actually still cause a buildup of that visceral fat or the fat that wraps around your inner abdominal organs. And we know that that type of fat is actually highly inflammatory. It functions like an immune organ spewing out inflammatory markers at all hours of the day. Before we get into more about the anti-inflammatory diet, which we've covered a little bit with the, you know, lots of greens and a plant-based diet, how did you find all these things? This must have taken a long time. I mean, there's so much research in this book. It's really impressive. Thank you so much for that. And yes, I did do a lot of research and and partly also uh, I, I do see a lot of patients who come in with, with some sort of chronic inflammatory disorder or another. I have, I have patients with inflammatory bowel disease who come in with inflamed intestines. I have patients with celiac disease, uh, lots of patients with irritable bowel syndrome, and those patients uh, we know also tend to have inflammation in their guts. And patients just had a lot of questions on on uh, diet and lifestyle, primarily, you know, what kinds of foods should we be eating? Is there an anti-inflammatory diet? So my patients were also one motivation for writing the book. And I just remember I, I would read anything I could get my hands on in journals on uh, nutrition science and and also uh, my, my friend Jay, what, what happened to him uh, also prompted me in some ways because autoimmune disorders are rising exponentially these days. And, oh, yeah. and so that effect is not just due to our genes, but also due to our environment. And I wanted to find out what had happened to him, why, and if there was some way to maybe prevent future instances of, of, of his body reacting against itself, of, of his immune system reacting against itself. We talked about plant-based eating. What are some other important components of an anti-inflammatory diet? So one of the main uh, uh, things, I think, is to really focus on food preparation. I think that's a missing component of the conversation on uh, diet and health sometimes because we, we talk about certain foods, but we know that all foods are not equal, even though we might call them the same things. So a bagel is not the same as a sourdough bread. And uh, that bagel will have very different effects in your body, you know, uh, the uh, refined white flour bagel than a uh, fermented sourdough bed. So, so we know that certain food preparation techniques can really change the architecture of a food, rendering it much more anti-inflammatory. When, when you have uh, foods that are fermented, for example, uh, 
fermented foods and fermentation in general can lower the glucose inside of the food. It can, it can increase the nutrients, increase the vitamins and the minerals. And it can also decrease some of these so-called anti-nutrients that we talk about quite frequently. Uh, and fermentation can help our bodies tolerate the food better, but it can do so much more than that. It can also introduce germs into our guts that are beneficial for our bodies, uh, probiotic germs. And with fermentation, one of the things that often comes up is, well, if I'm ingesting these germs, uh, who knows if they're going to stick around in the gut and colonize the gut? And, and that's a popular uh, question. But even if the germs are not sticking around in your gut, even if the germs are not there to stay, they're actually, you know, having conversations with uh, the other germs in your gut, having conversations with the immune cells. So they actually also make metabolites uh, that could be beneficial. So they are still having some positive health effects on the body. And even if you have a cooked fermented food like that sourdough bread, and you may not have viable bacteria in that food, but you still do have the dead bacteria, maybe bacterial metabolites as well, that could be very helpful. So I think really focusing on food preparation techniques is, is very important. I'm a big fan of healthy fat. So I, I know that there we talked about the fat that's not so great, but talk to us about the healthy fat. And does that play a role in inflammation or does that actually help bring it down? Absolutely. You know, we certainly do have great healthy fats that we can be consuming. Now, we know that saturated fat on a biological level tends to be quite inflammatory, but unsaturated fat, and these are the types of fats you find in things like nuts and seeds and avocados, unsaturated fat can be very beneficial for the body and anti-inflammatory. We know, for example, that consuming just a handful of nuts each day, randomized control trials have shown that that, that act is tied to a lower risk of many chronic inflammatory disorders and a lower risk of death from any cause. And we know that the omega-3 fats, omega-3 fats are polyunsaturated fats. And you can find those, you know, if you are 100% plant-based, you can, you can certainly find those in plant-based foods like walnuts and kale, you know, and other dark greens and algae. Uh, but you can also find those in, in, in seafood. And if uh, folks are eating seafood, I tend to counsel them to eat sort of the smaller, uh, uh, the smaller organisms uh, in order to avoid kind of those toxins that tend to build up in seafood. But the omega-3s are just wonderful anti-inflammatory agents, and they help to not only dampen, but also to reverse inflammation. And they have positive effects in our gut, uh, in terms of the gut microbiome as well, because these omega-3s, all of these facts we eat, in fact, uh, you know, some of the fat makes its way down to the colon and is uh, fermented by the microbes in our gut. So the omega-3s uh, are, are uh, metabolized by the microbes as well and have many beneficial anti-inflammatory effects th throughout the body. Now, how is exercise anti-inflammatory? Well, we know we've heard the advice that we should all be moving every day in some way. And right. exercise is, is one of the best things that you can do for your bodies. We have dozens of controlled trials showing that exercise, you know, across age groups, across the board, regular exercise tends to dampen inflammatory markers in the blood. And exercise is also tied to a lower risk of so many different chronic inflammatory disorders. And when I say chronic inflammatory disorders, of course, I'm talking about not just the autoimmune disorders that we are used to speaking of in the context of inflammation, but also heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity. 
neurodegenerative disorders, all of these disorders that may at least in part be inflammatory disorders. And we do know that exercise, you know, um, has many wonderful effects from an anti-inflammatory standpoint in the body. And it can really melt that uh, visceral fat that is so insidious and so inflammatory. You know, and I was thinking about environmental factors. You write this great quote, from birth to death, the quantity and quality of our food conversations with microbes are influenced by food and drugs, as well as our tactile relationships with other humans, animals, and the germs we encounter as we mingle with the natural world, including its soil, air, and water. I've talked about on the show that the soil is just depleted. It's just not the same. If you're eating bread here or bread in Europe or, you know, the, the air quality, the water, those things are also, I would assume, contributing to our inflammation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the quality of soil is is a huge factor. And I think there have been great books that have been written about that topic as a whole in and of itself. And, you know, our, our agricultural practices also have, have changed uh, markedly, uh, drastically as well. And, you know, I think it's, it's so important to really be out in nature, be out in the natural world, because one of the most important things, aside from diet, for an anti-inflammatory lifestyle is to be in touch with the appropriate quantity and quality of microbes. And, and that means that we don't, of course, want to get infections all the time or anything like that. But what we want is, is to form uh, beneficial relationships with, with some of these microbes that we come across when we're hiking or when we're swimming in the ocean, when we are breathing in the forest air. And we know that even a few minutes spent in nature, studies have shown, can be so beneficial. They can ease stress and aggression. We're inhaling also um, essential oils that plants emit. And, uh, you know, just all, all of this stuff can be so wonderful for the body. It can help to calm inflammation, can help to boost immunity as well. And getting in touch with those microbes means that, you know, we, we are allowing those microbes that we live around uh, be correct types of microbes to have conversations with our immune cells. And this is something that happens from birth on to death. And we need to be interacting with the right quality, quantity of, of microbes all throughout our lives, because that's how our immune systems are shaped most optimally. And that's how we ensure that our immune systems won't overreact to, to harmless things like pollen or dust or dander. Now, Dr. Ravella, in your bio, I mentioned you're a transplant gastroenterologist. What, what does that mean, the transplant part? Well, for about seven years in my career, I took care of patients who had undergone intestinal or multiple organ transplants. And sometimes these are patients who, for example, had most of their intestines taken out due to something like Crohn's disease and then would require an intestinal transplant. And that means that they get intestines from another person uh, and then also other abdominal organs as well, like the stomach uh, and colon as well. And so I would uh, be very involved in the post-operative uh, management of these patients, and we would deploy immune-suppressing drugs in order to sort of calm their immune systems down because transplanting the intestines, unlike transplanting other organs, which tend to be more sterile, uh, transplanting the intestines, uh, you, were, you were actually putting in a very immunogenic organ, which means that you were transplanting you know, a lot of germs and your body tends to react badly against something like that. So we would use higher doses of immune suppressing medications. I didn't even know you could do that with intestines. I mean, I feel like that people are probably listening going, Lisa, you don't know what transplant means? No, I do. I just did not even realize that that's something a gastroenterologist would be doing. That That's fascinating. How long has that been going on? It's a relatively small field. And, uh, you know, it, it it's actually 
about, let's see, 50 years ago, Thomas Starzl at the University of Pittsburgh was performing intestinal transplants in dogs. Um, and, you know, it, it was just uh, a hard thing to envision because we, we are transplanting uh, much of the immune system when we transplant the intestines as well, along with all, all of those germs in the gut. And so the outcomes for quite some time were, were not as favorable, but the outcomes are steadily improving over time. And, and uh, there are only about a couple of hundred cases done around the world today, but it's a very interesting field. And, you know, these patients, if um, they are properly maintained on immunosuppressive uh, medications, uh, these patients can indeed end up doing quite okay, depending oh. on the individual case, though. What did you like most about writing the book? I'd have to say just the process of learning, uh, just uh, just that process of discovery of of uh, going into, you know, say archival information on Virchow or another scientist, and just learning so much about inflammation and learning how pervasive it is. I mean, I see it from my own specialty, or I've seen it from my own specialty for a very long time. But really, uh, going out into the literature and uh, learning about a variety of specialties and and uh, you know, just uh, that deep dive, I think, was, was very exciting and, and very rewarding. Well, was there anything that we didn't touch on today, Doctor, that you were hoping to talk about? I think, uh, I, I think we've covered a lot of great topics, actually. Yeah, well, the book is great. I mean, so much to talk about. And I love okay. history, so that was fascinating. And it's interesting, too, how some people are just ahead of their time, right? Like, Virchow was, like, really thinking outside the box. Absolutely. It's, it's just simply incredible. I mean, it's, it, it's amazing that he, he was able to come up with some of uh, the theories that he came up with in that time. It really is. Where can people learn more? And people have got to get your book, A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease. Well, they can go to uh, com, and I have all the information there on how to order the book. And I have a blog on there as well with with some topics related to inflammation and diet and health and wellness in general. Oh, that's fantastic. And can you spell that for us, your name? Yep. yep. Uh, Shilpa Ravella is, is S-H-I-L-P-A-R-A-V-E-L-L-A. Great. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Are you on social media? I am. Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram, and I have a LinkedIn account. Oh, great. Okay. Well, everybody be sure to check out Dr. Shulpa Ravella's fantastic book and keep coming back to Health Power. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Davis MPH. Everyone have a great day. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.